Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Zach on Film this, this week. Is, this is the greatest episode of Zach on Film? I, I think it's shaping up to be already. Okay. And then we're, this week we're talking uh, Breakfast Club. All right, Breakfast Club. It will Club. be the greatest episode of the show. Ni- 1985, mm-hmm. John Hughes, five kids, one Saturday, endless possibilities, endless possibilities. right? Dear Mr. Vernon. We accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention. So why are they into? Why are they into? Why, you know, why are they there? Why? Why are they at a high school on a Saturday, Zach? Well, they each had their own set of bad things they did, which doesn't really get into until the very end of the movie, which of... it was awesome. That's your assessment? Is it was awesome? This entire movie? Yes. Yeah. Okay. This and you've movie. never seen this movie before. Uh, not before I saw it. <laughs> what? <I don't, laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure if that was the most obvious thing I've ever heard, <laughs> or like a really big no. It was really just really obvious, wasn't it? I don't think there was any further thought behind it. <laughs> uh, mentioned this was John Hughes. This is uh, written and directed by John Hughes. This was his second movie that he directed. The first one being just a year or two earlier with 16 candles um that also starred molly ringwald mm-hmm. uh michael anthony hall anthony michael hall anthony michael hall and who else was in that was uh anybody else from this group in that movie breakfast club i don't think anybody from think this just group. those two okay there were other people in it oh yeah yeah of course matt uh, dylan Yeti was, in Watanabe it. was in it yes I, you know what that was almost a poll of the week a couple of weeks ago which one is your your favorite uh, coming of age film by John Hughes? Is it Sixteen Candles or is it Breakfast Club? Mm. Because these two are just so so see, close. Saint Elmo's Fire. Well, yeah, okay, I can see that. Um, pretty in pink. Pretty in pink. And there's a lot of John. Have you seen any of these? Have you seen Saint Elmo's Fire? Mm-hmm. Sixteen Candles. Have you ever seen Sixteen Candles? No, but I've heard of it. I think I've probably seen like fifteen minutes of it on TV before. Okay. It's much uh, better when you don't have to worry about the censorship of TBS. Oh. <laughs> uh, so here are these five kids played by Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy, all uh, having to do a day's worth of detention at uh, Shermer High School in Shermer, Illinois. Um, and their uh, vice, is he vice principal? Yes, Richard Vernon. Richard Vernon. Does uh, Barry Manilow know that you raided his closet? <laughs> hey, this that is screw that's going to fall out around here is you. <laughs> no, Dad. What about you? Um, man, this is the weird thing. I have not watched The Breakfast Club in 15, 15 to 20 years easily. Mm-hmm. And yet I sat down and watched this just the other night. And I'm just like quoting line for line what's coming up because it's just one of those movies that gets ingrained in at least Matthews and I's age group. Rodrigo, I don't know about your age group. Is this was this a 
a seminal movie for for your age range, the thirty ish people? Oh, definitely not. Okay. Um, I think some some people picked it up from like having older brothers and stuff like that, and they were into it. But I mean, if you if you want this, uh, and and this might be a little sad, this movie for us is American Pie. Yeah. 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 So this is a coming of age comedy drama. What Matthew is a coming of age movie? Fill in young Zach on the coming of age flick genre. Well, young Zach, when you're grown up, in a few years you're going to start liking girls, and your voice will change, <laughs> and you'll about time you'll you'll go through an expectation that you have to turn into something, uh, a grown up or a success or a, a I don't know a criminal. But the coming of age movie, especially in the '80s, was all about not just what you're going to become, what you think you're going to become, what people expect you to become. But it's also one of those things where people used it as kind of a metaphor for everything. So the coming of age movie is, are you what you think you are? Or does that smile? Never mind. Well, I mean, but that, though, is exactly what's going on in this movie, right, Zach? I mean, here we have five kids that are brought together, each from a different clique, group, income class, whatever. You know, you've got the jock, the, the geek, the princess, the outcast the motorhead right um it's so much better explained in uh, ferris bueller's day off also another uh that's John the way Hughes we film. saw each other at seven o'clock this morning we <laughs> <were brainwashed>. but <laughs> Dude, so I, I can quote this movie here backwards. they here they come in and they have these class expectations right mm-hmm. and what they're able to do in this day that they're together is explore what it's like to be outside their comfort zone, outside of their their group, right? And it kind of works. Maybe it doesn't work. Um, but uh, I think at the end, everybody comes out a little changed, right? right. So that's kind of what we see in a coming-of-age film. I mean, obviously, you can go look at a movie like Porky's, and it's quite a bit <laughs> different than what we see in The Breakfast Club. You can go and watch, um, Rodrigo, you had mentioned American Pie. Right. And, uh, you know, it's it's approached quite a bit different. You don't have people crying and... And uh, breaking down over, you know, things that they have done and things that they're regretting. Um, but instead, they're going out and it's all sex comedy, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think, and this uh, this goes back to a conversation that we've had on one of our other podcasts before, the Major Spoilers podcast, uh, where we're talking about movies that have an impact on us and this time period that we think the greatest movies came out for us. And we were talking about this, these movies, and they all seem to come out around the time that we are between 14 and 18 years old. It was in our discussion. And certainly, when you're looking at The Breakfast Club 1985, for Matthew and I, and maybe many of our listeners, we're 15, Mm -hmm. right? We're going through a lot of the exact same things that these kids are going through. We're in high school with these kids. We're meeting with these different groups of people. Uh, And so I think maybe, for us, this movie has a stronger resonance than maybe for you or for Rodrigo. Am I wrong on that? Do you think any of you? No, I think you're absolutely right. It, it's, you know, uh, things will have a different impact on you depending on when you watch them. I think I watched Goonies when I was like 22. Oh man, And I was I'm like, so what is the big deal, you guys? But of course, then I immediate, pretty much immediately got mauled because, you know, people love Goonies. But I think it's largely because they watched it when they were younger. And if you don't approach it that way, 
then you might get um you might be disappointed conversely i loved short circuit when i first saw it as a tiny child going back and watching it i'm like this movie was not as good as i remember <laughs> um but yeah i mean the 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 moment in your life at which you watch a movie is very important and can drastically influence how you see the movie mm-hmm. plus on top of that movies that are created around the time that you are that old will have themes that resonate with you you know if you grew up during the cold war then movies that have cold war themes will resonate with you whereas they will not for anybody who was older than that or who was younger than that you know and things like that well you know i agree things that are going on right now uh in uh, north korea Right. I don't know. I don't know about yeah. you guys. Maybe not, but I'm certainly sitting there watching the news and having these flashbacks to the '80s when we were told we were all going to die. And of course, you know, other things are going on. The week that this show's recorded, Margaret Thatcher, who was really the prime minister throughout the '80s, uh, dies, and so it's just like ah, I'm having a flashback to my youth yeah. and how terrible it was. And those sandwiches. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, f- this is one of those movies that defines. The coming of age. And for Matthew and I going through this time period, this has a lot of resonance. Do you know what imprinting is, Zach? What is imprinting, Matthew? I could think of some jackass answer, but... Go ahead. Give him Go ahead. Jack- give the jackass answer. Well, It'll be a nice turn I'm of only going to count in, you down. In, You're only going to have to do another week of detention. Printing is when you have imps running the printing machine. Do you want another week? <laughs> do you want another week? Yes, yes, I do. You got I it. Do. You right I do. there. There's I two. I'll have to check my calendar. No, right there. Three. Okay. How you many want another? Yes. Are we up to now? Four. I can uh, go. I, no, I'm sorry, two. sir. That's seven, counting the one that you <laughs> gave him when he first came in. It's eight. Now it's eight. <laughs> no, sir. I'm sorry. It's seven. Um, Imprinting, Stephen. Yes, Matthew. This happens a lot with baby ducks and chicks. Indeed. Basically, it is a... a process of learning that that sort of i want to say it sticks you learn the characteristics of a particular item or stimulus in this case a movie mm-hmm. and it becomes kind of a part of the way you view things the right. way that you you know the way you so, take those characteristics and imprint them onto your own behavior right so when a baby chick is born or when a baby duck is born it's really important that early on that they see the adult chicken, the adult hen or the duck, so that they say that is their mama. That's why if you go and you look at baby birds being fed, they're not being fed by someone's hand. They're being fed by someone holding a puppet of a condor, feeding them the stuff so that they say, okay, this is what my group of people are. And so I think what's kind of cool about Zach on film is you're still in that impressionable age, Mm -hmm. the area that we can imprint upon you, that we're dumping all these movies (laughs) onto you so that they'll have some kind of sticking uh, factor going forward. Yeah. So for us, Matthew and I quoting all the lines from this movie or a majority of the lines from this movie or some of the more well-known lines from this movie. By the end of the show, the two of them we will have quoted the entire we'll movie. Yes. The entire when, you, movie. when you grow up, your heart dies, Rodrigo. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, for us, this did define how we interacted with people and to an extent, I think, helped maybe us come to grips with the problems that we may have been going through in our own schools. Now, Mm -hmm. granted, I went to a very small school. I mean, we had 200 kids in the school. So 
I kind of knew everybody right. and floated among these circles. I don't know, Matthew, how your school was or, or how it was for you, Rodrigo. You went to a school with thousands, right? No, no. Actually, my school was I, it was a city school, but my school was small because it was built in the like the 70s. Oh, OK. So my I actually went to a relatively small school, all things considered. Um, of course, it was still larger than a lot of the schools here. Then again, once you get into like certain places in the Midwest that have consolidated, those schools are colossal. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had maybe six or seven hundred kids. Okay, so we probably went to the same size school. I had I had thirty kids in my graduating class. You had how many? Zach? I had twenty four. Twenty four. So you know, kind of that same area. Mm-hmm. So it it becomes a little bit harder for clicks. You know, yes, you still have the jocks. Yes, you still have the motorheads. Yes, you still had the geeks. Uh, right. Um, but here the class separation is so much greater when you're at a big high school, like, uh, Shermer high school, which is huge. I mean, the amount of time that they're running through the building in a lot of those scenes, yeah. <laughs> it's like there's 20,000 kids going to this high school. And so it may make sense that they don't know who each other mm-hmm. are or who they associate with. I think to some degree, this movie created archetypes that yes. people of our generation tried to either live up to or live down. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, yes, there were definitely people who were Bender-esque and people who were Andrew-adjacent. But after this movie, being the Bender character, people are like, dude, you, you like Bender. You know? And then you know, you, you'd start messing with people. Uh, young Zach here is very interested in pursuing a career in the janitorial arts. <laughs> what are some of the big themes that you got out of this movie then, Zach? I mean, we're talking about why this movie is important to a specific generation, but there are yeah. themes that I think that still carry forward. And what are some of those themes that you gathered from from the movie? One that I got pretty early on was that kids, no matter how different, despise the person in authority. Because uh-huh. like right in the beginning of the movie, they all pretty much band together, even though they hate each other at first, they still band against, band against together against, uh, Vernon. And yeah. yeah, And still pull crap on him, even though they hate Bender, they think Mm -hmm. he's a tool. They're still covering for him because Vernon is worse. (laughs) And so that's, I think that's a big, he's another kid. Well, he's, he's represents authority. And and so likewise, not just the authority of the governance or whoever, in Mm -hmm. this case, the school, but, and I was surprised again, again, I haven't seen this movie in 15, 20 years. The fact that so many kids are having these issues with their parents because the parental mm-hmm. authority yeah. comes up a lot. You know, Claire with, do you do what your, do you do what your dad says or do you do whatever your, the opposite of whatever your mom says, which would you live with if, if they got divorced, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And then even in the opening scene, we see, um, uh, Michael Anthony Hall, uh, um, Anthony, Anthony Michael Hall. You know, his mom is sitting there saying, so is this going to be a regular habit? Is this going to happen again? He's like, no. And so she's like really berating him. Coincidentally. You better find a way to study in there, mister. But mom, we're just supposed to sit there and do nothing. Well, you figure it out. Yeah, says the little sister. And I wanted to thump her in the head because it's just like my (laughs) sister. That is actually Anthony Michael. That's what I was going to say. That's his real mom in that. Yeah. Yeah. And his little sister. Oh, I didn't realize it was his sister, too. I knew it was his mom. <laughs> that's, that's his actual family. Man, that's pretty creepy. But, you know, <laughs> we get to see everybody's family interaction except for Bender and mm-hmm. Ali Sheedy's interaction with her, whoever is dropping her off. We really don't know. But the only even, interaction we see is where she tries to say goodbye and they just speed right. off, right? So they don't even give a crap about their kids, which seems to be another thing of 
you know, we hate authority and nobody gives a crap about us. Right. Which, you know, given the time period and the things that were going on, probably about right. You know, the 80s were a lot of uh, me, 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 me. That's universal. Yeah, that's, probably. Yeah. That's on the direction. So what's another theme that you got out of this? What's another Oh, theme? besides... Besides the rebellion against authority. Right. That... Kids <laughs> are generally... Are... Oh, the kids are all right. <laughs> yeah, they're all right. They have to. They they put themselves into cliques, even though they don't like them. Yeah, and then they have to fight them, but they still want them for comfort. However, Societal you want to phrase that. Force them into the roles. Yes. Right there, you right. go. It's there is that. I mean, the 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 Breakfast Club explores that idea that um, you know you you can be perfectly comfortable being a nerd or a jock. Um, or, you know, just getting yourself nice clothes and, or, or taking yourself out of the picture altogether, but there's going to be more to a person than those roles. And by not being around more jocks or more nerds or whatever, these characters start exploring like their actual identities rather than their social identities. Mm -hmm. Why is that door closed? I don't know, sir. Just doors closed. Screws fall out all the time. It's Screws fall out all the time. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. You can't put that there. That clearly violates the fire codes. But there are clearly fire exits on each side of the... Shut up. Um, but not only that, that we're, that we're kind of forced into those social expectations, but this movie at least explores the idea that it's okay to break out of those yeah. social expectations. And there, I mean, change. there are some... There are some disturbing undertones. Oh, there's a um, lot. There's a lot. There's, there's overtones of conformity and overtones of, you know, the the whole growing up destroying your soul. You're, you're break, the, hold on just a second, Matthew. You're breaking I'm, up just a little I'm, bit. I'm, 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 okay, try that's it again. How I say Christmas. Try it again. Better? Worse yeah, go ahead. Busy. I think you're all right. Okay. Just for a second there. It happens occasionally when you're working with Skype. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, as the kids go through this movie, a little bit of that happens to them because they find that they get along better together as long as they all sort of give up the little bits of identity that they've made for themselves. But especially in the case of uh, Allison. Oh, Allie Alli mm -hmm. Yeah, Allison basically finds that she could be more popular if only she was prettier. Yeah, or yeah. Oh, if only she made herself outwardly more attractive, people would love her more. So, so when you're looking at the Molly Ringwald character, Claire, especially right in the last ten minutes of that movie, doesn't she come off as more of a she doesn't get it kind of person? Because in the end, she's just like, "Oh, I can fix all of you, uh, Brian. Uh, you're smart. Why don't you write our paper? And you, the the creepy girl. Why don't I make you pretty? And oh, outcast boy. Uh, yes, I'm going to." show you that I that I do care. And it just to me it seemed really off in that last what, five what minutes actually of the movie. What happens is you have five people who come in with five social expectations and five, you know, cliques or identities, and they all end up kind of homogenizing into Claire's popular clique. Yeah, 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 yeah. And even, you know, even Bender's edges get a little bit shaved down by the romantic interaction with her. She as that popular girl 
is central to showing the others, but she doesn't ever transcend her own nature as the popular pretty girl. Right. Instead, all the others basically come up to or down to, depending on how you look at it, the level that she's on. So there is that leveling effect, but it's not an equalizing effect. Everybody ends up with Being Claire and to a lesser degree, Andrew, the pretty people. Yeah. 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 That's really that. That was the really disturbing part. And again, when I saw this, when it first came out, uh, probably I actually didn't see it when it first came out. I probably saw it when it was on HBO a few years later because I was forbidden from seeing R-rated movies <laughs> if I was under 18 from my parents. And then the first time I told my mom I went and saw Beverly Hills Cop, she like flipped out. Um, and probably for good reason. Um, but yeah, that was the disturbing thing was, oh yeah, the message is it's okay to be different as long as you're the pretty people different. And that's just that final message of just, whoa. Now, granted, that's Matthew and I looking back through 20 years of of, uh, not being the pretty people. Claire progressed a little bit by the whole earring, taking off the earring and giving away her big fancy earring. Yeah, but there's also the sequence where Bender is like, you know how you say your parents do things to get back at each other? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't I be outstanding in that capacity? To some degree, you can take that and their interaction as Claire rebelling to the point of, you know, bonding with Bender. And we never see if they, any of these characters, this is most important. We never see what happens on Monday morning if they yeah, ever. Right, talk. right. right. Well, go ahead, Rodrigo. What were you going to say about that? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's interesting and uh, we can. We can talk about this a little bit more later, probably. Um, this movie ends in a freeze frame, right? right? Right. I mean, it literally ends in a freeze frame. Like, yeah, time we stops. do not know. Time stops. Nothing else happens after this. We do not know if next Monday these yeah. guys are all going to see each other and be like, hey, what's up? Or if they're not going to talk to each other or if they're going to go sit together and be friends forever. Right. Like. We do not get to see that. So speculate and, then, Rodrigo, what happened Monday morning? I mean, they had the big conversation. That was a key part, part of the movie where they're saying what happens Monday. And um, Claire's like, no, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to laugh at you. And, you know, if I was dating Bender, your friends would laugh. And, uh, you know, if uh, the nerd came up and talked with the Sporto, you'd be like making fun of him. Right. They they talk about that. But what what happens Monday mornings, uh, 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 Rodrigo? I, I think I think nothing happens. I think literally time freezes with uh, yep. Bender's uh, hand up in the air. Okay. Yep, like Zach uh, Morris, it is eternally yes. March twenty fourth, nineteen eighty four, forever. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think I I think really the 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 saddest way of looking at the movie, and possibly the most truthful, uh, you know, potentially, is that come Monday morning, everybody's gonna go back to their roles being a little bit changed and you know maybe it will the experience will have changed them and they won't be quite so mean to each other or whatever but once society comes back into the picture it's very difficult to fight it openly at all times yeah 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 Yeah, my my impression of monday morning is same as it ever was right right i mean that there is there's no hey buddy pal that i spent saturday with it's uh gonna be Maybe the head nod in the hallway, but that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially going to be, in my mind, like they described as they're sitting in the circle, where none of them are really, they'll maybe acknowledge them and then just bash them to their friends behind the back once they leave, besides uh, 
Brian. Yeah. And they won't, they'll acknowledge each other for maybe 15 seconds mm-hmm. and then just berate them behind their back and just like they talked about in the movie. So what did everybody think of the acting? Rodrigo? That's that's interesting. I definitely think that um, Emilio Estevez comes into his own as Coach Bombay in The Mighty Ducks. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I've never thought that Molly Ringwald was particularly good. Um, I think that Anthony Michael Hall does a good job of being a pushed around nerd. Mm-hmm. I think generally there's like maybe like if you draw a line and say this is acting and anything above it is overacting. I would say that all of the kids, you know, basically bump up past the line at one point or another. But I thought generally, I mean, it's 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 a pretty low key idea for a movie. So it doesn't really lead you to like grand crazy speeches to rally the troops or anything like that. So altogether, I thought that, that it was a conservative like like the acting seemed okay and there were very little moments of hamdom right except maybe from um what's his name bender nelson yes absolutely uh matthew what about you oh i think everybody has their hammy moments um when uh ali sheedy is talking about how she's totally a pathetic liar right right yeah and there there are moments for everybody in this film that are really good Mm-hmm. And really subtle and have a lot of depth. And then every last one of them has a moment where they're just like totally awful. Yeah. <laughs> the moment where where uh, Bender finally goes off and he's like, you don't know my friends. You don't talk to my friends. That's really good. Yeah, that yeah. anger mm-hmm. feels really, really authentic. And then he goes off onto a 15 minute tangent that kind of goes, well, and oh, that's, right, we're in a movie. And part of that, I, I think, is that I... It kind of felt like they flipped between emotions so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it kind of <laughs> and again, <laughs> this is me looking back at it through, you know, 20 plus years since I was a teenager mm-hmm. and saying, oh, yeah, man, that's pretty. They're flipping back and forth. But I remember watching this as a younger kid and think, oh, this is just real supernatural. But the thing that feels uh-huh. very but authentic a lot of, to me. Yeah. Are the shifts in power. Specifically, the sequence where they're like, "Are you a slut or a tease?" Yeah, yeah. and, and everybody Claire, ganging up on Claire. Everybody was Claire held all the power, and they just flipped it on her. Yeah, and then two minutes later, all of a sudden, you know, Anthony Michael Hall goes off, and everybody's attention is there. I mean, they really did a good job. I felt of balancing their hams. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. For a while, just... there was some serious ham to ham combat. <laughs> two hits. Yeah, I yeah. Hit you. You hit, you hit the, the floor. floor. Yeah. yeah, that was bad. Um, yeah, they were, uh, well, because I kill you. Yeah, but that is something that like a stupid kid would say. Yeah. Oh, like, that's it, that's it, yeah. that's the funny thing is that a lot of the time, all of the like, sometimes like the weird dialogue and the the moments where like it just looks like weird posturing is because kids say weird things oh, and yeah, are yeah, always yeah. posturing. Yeah. No, I, re- I remember those moments in, lamps, in high school. There'd be no light. You just got to click on the, the elephant. You're supposed to pull on its trunk and it was supposed to turn on. And, and no, I you're a freaking genius because you can't build a lamp. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you think of the, of the acting, Zach? Not of the casting, but mm-hmm. of the acting. The Zach-ting. 
if you will. <laughs> yes, let's get into this acting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing now. <laughs> I I enjoyed it. I think you you uh, hit it. There is a lot of switching of emotions very quickly, but like you also said, that's pretty natural for teenagers Mm -hmm. especially when i was growing up with my sister who was three years younger than me i was like she is all over the place yeah yeah. i was completely fine i was normal (laughs) she was insane yeah yeah. i finally saw a picture of your whole family the other day you added up on facebook or something i don't know did i yeah yeah, yeah. it's pretty cute Um, oh no from easter yeah yeah. that was my girlfriend's family oh okay well yeah all right then your girlfriend has a cute family (laughs) so interestingly in, in in the casting side Judd Nelson wasn't always going to play uh, John Bender. Um, at one point, they had Nicolas Cage being considered uh, to play that. And uh, then John, it John was Cusack. between John Cusack and Nelson. And they originally hired Cusack to play it. But for whatever reason, like just a few days or so before they started shooting, Cusack stepped out and and um, uh, Nelson moved in. I think Cusack went and dead, did uh, Better Off Dead or something. Um, and Rick Moranis was going to be cast as the uh, the janitor in that movie. Yeah. So, Rick Moranis apparently was cast as the janitor, and there was some sort of issue. Oh, creative differences is what it what uh, is there? What it was? Yeah, yeah. I, I I never heard specifically what it was, but I know that somebody said there was totally an issue. Before we get into uh, the technical stuff, why don't we take a break and uh, give a shout out to all of those people who help make this show possible? Who are those people? Claire, what did those people do, Claire? What can Craig Borden, Christina Craighead, Jeffrey Sire, Tanjin Ming, Daniel Purcell, Cody Dixon, Brian Gatley, Brian? I think I think he meant to sing Dwayne Harder, Brian Dwayne? Woodard. No, I meant to say Dwayne the Bathtub. I am Dwowning. <laughs> Dwayne and Brian are actually one man who changes his name for tax purposes. And, of course, who could forget our very last person on the list this week, Matthew? Christopher Hudspeth. I said him once already. Are those real diamonds, Christopher Hudspeth? (laughs) Did you work for the money for those earrings, Christopher Hudspeth? Or did your daddy buy those for you? So, um, this was... so. Zach, on the, on some technical things yeah. that I want you to comment on. The first thing right. was, this was John Hughes's second uh, film directing. It was originally, I think, supposed to be his directorial debut. But um, he convinced the studio that because the budget for this film was a million dollars, that he could go ahead and direct it and not have any problem directing it. And so one of the things that he did was he set it in one room throughout the whole movie or that yeah. was the plan was to set it in one room throughout the whole movie right what did you think of that how do, why does that work or why does that not work when i started this movie because i knew almost nothing and they all start walking in to this library i thought to myself oh i really hope this entire thing is in here and it was for the most part and it was great because you had you put five teenagers from different places into essentially a cage match of emotions. And then they each had to battle with their emotions and personalities and watch that come out. And so setting him, not allowing them to leave Mm -hmm. or not allowing them to leave individually, at least made them 
or made the characters have to work through each other and develop them continuously throughout the entire movie. But why, from a director standpoint, especially as a young director, yeah, why is this kind of situation actually a good situation? Uh, I got one. Okay. Go ahead, Rodrigo. Control. Explain. So when you have everything set in a single room or in just a single location, you have a lot more time to tweak everything to be perfect. You have a lot more control over what's happening. Um, the more locations you have, the more likely something is to go wrong, the more likely something is going to have to get fixed. Um, so that's one of the things, certainly. The other one is obviously budget. Um, the mm-hmm. more locations you have, because every location has a multiplier on it, basically, because every location has to be lit. Every location has to be checked for sound and some amount of sound uh, work is going to have to be done on it. Um, plus, each location is going to have any number of unforeseen problems that yeah. could crop up. Obviously, once if you're in a sound stage, that fixes a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But also, it's difficult to make a sound stage and not look like a sound stage. Yeah, the main thing is you have that that ultimate control. I'm going to agree with Rodrigo there because now I don't have to worry about oh, do we have to go reposition that light because we're in a new location? Do we have to wait another hour to get everything repositioned? We're in this one location. Let's just move the camera, set up our shot, and go. Mm-hmm. I can spend more time with my actors, getting the best performance from them. Um, we don't have to worry about a whole lot of continuity issues because everything's happening in the same place. We don't have to worry about it being day to night to day to night. Uh, one of the interesting things, though, is um, the two high schools that they shot in, one was an abandoned school. It had been empty for about two years or so before Hughes stepped in to, um, to, to shoot there. Uh, is actually the same school that they used in Ferris Bueller's Day Off a few years later. And apparently, if you watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you'll see a lot of the posters that are hanging on the walls. In Ferris Bueller were also the posters that were hanging <laughs> in the walls in, in, uh, in uh, Breakfast, Club. Breakfast Club. And so it's really weird. I think they shot back. Oh, he shot back to back. That was the other thing. He shot Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off back to back because it was cheaper for him to do that. Oh. Um, the other interesting thing about this is when they picked the high schools to go shoot in, the library that they wanted to shoot in was actually too small to shoot in. Mm-hmm. So they actually built the library in the school's gymnasium so that they could get a big enough set for that. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's interesting. And you know, this is when we look at this, uh, you know, from the lighting perspective, um, this is a lot of classic Hollywood lighting that's going on. I mean, everybody has a rim light. Mm -hmm. There are very few times in that movie where one of the actors isn't lit with a nice rim of light around their head to make them pop or stand out. The few times that you don't see it, it makes the image look really flat. So, you know, the importance of having that separation between foreground and background is really intense. And I tried to look, and of course, it, I'm watching this on a digital copy through iTunes, not on a DVD or not watching on the original film. But the other thing that you can do to kind of create um, separation between your subject and your foreground is to put fog in the scene mm-hmm. because it'll help diffuse that background. Now, working with film cameras, you can get a pretty shallow depth of field. But I could have swore in that scene, the big pivotal scene in the movie, Matthew where they're all sitting around and, and telling why they were each uh, in detention. But if you look at the background, it looks like there is some kind of smoke or fog that they've added to that background moving around to kind of create just another bit of separation between, you know, the, the kids in the front and the statue and the library stuff in the back. And so you can do that, uh, Zach. You definitely can. 
the, the thing that's interesting for me about that particular sequence, sliding slightly off topic, no, go ahead. is reputedly, they had a rough idea of what to say. Right. But Waters and Waters, yeah. John Waters. <laughs> Waters <laughs> movie, yeah, boy, that'd be John a John totally Waters just movie. basically told them ad lib. So the stuff when they're oh, sitting yeah. in the circle is supposed to is supposedly partly ad libbed. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Um the one you know, that sequence is really important for me as far as how you shoot a scene, because we have a shot where Emilio Estevez is talking about you know the pressure that's being put on him and you see him talking about, you know, my parents tell me I have to Brian, be strong and da, 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 da. When? Yeah. When? There's no losers and, in this family. And watch how this shot, this is a nice uh, dolly shot that actually starts on one side mm-hmm. and it's okay that you pass right in front of a pillar for a huge like chunk twice. for like, yeah, twice <laughs> yeah. to get to this point where you're looking at this now from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And that adds so much depth to to the shot. So don't be afraid of of using dolly shots and using foreground elements to create that that depth. That that's one. If I was going to say two shots that always stick out to me in this movie uh, is the first one is is that dolly shot, and the mm-hmm. second one is um, Bender looking up Molly Ringwald's dress oh, yeah. um, or skirt. Um, but you know when we talk about cinematic motion. Um, that really is what makes something look like it was shot on film, moving yeah. that camera around like you would see in a film set. Yeah. The other thing going back to um, why shoot in this one location is, look, most of them are in the exact same seats for a majority of the movie. So as far as camera setups, you can really limit the number of camera setups that you have to do. Mm-hmm. And you can get these two shots or single shots real easily without doing a whole lot of extra work once your light is set up. And I don't yeah. know if you notice that or if you even think about that, of how you're staging your actors and your, your cameras in the scene. Do you think about that at all? Not when I was watching this. I didn't. But I mean, do you it. think about it when you go out and shoot? I mean, we've talked rules of thirds before, and you know right, the rule of yeah. thirds, and you know the 180 degree rule and those kinds of things. Right. But do you actually sit there and think, okay, what is he saying by putting, you know, Brian in the foreground and Ali Sheedy's character in the background and he's composing it that way. What's he saying about those characters' relationships? Or mm-hmm. why is it when they're shooting uh, Ringwald and Estevez and, and uh, Nelson, why are they using this triangle system of conversation? Do you ever think about that when you're when you're getting ready to go and shoot stuff? Besides from a purely technical aspect of just framing, I do then, but from a meta what is being sure. said, mm-hmm. not as much. Okay, so from a technical yet. aspect, there's two books I really need to recommend to you that you really need to pick up. Okay. I think they're wonderful. There's very little reading in it because the book is filled with so many great examples. The first one is Film Directing Shot by Shot. That's visualizing from concept to screen by um, uh, Michael Weissy Productions um, by Stephen D. Katz. The book came out in 1991. But basically it's saying, hey, look, here's how you stage a scene. And you learn about the the vowel placement of, of actors, the A, the I, the, the O, and the U staging of actors, and how by staging your actors in certain letter patterns, how that helps you get your camera set, set, uh, setups very quickly and get the shot that you need to help convey your story. And it talks mm-hmm. about, you know, if you're doing an A setup, basically you have two actors on either side of the screen with another actor in the middle um, further on. A lot of confrontation scenes are done this way. If you're looking at an O shot and you're looking at how do you cover 
you're seeing from somebody sitting around a table. Here's how you do that. So I would really recommend that book for you. It's, it's really a good book to have. The other one came out a few years later, also by Stephen Katz, is Film Directing Cinematic Motion. Uh, this is one where let's move the camera. How do we move the camera? Why do you use a dolly? Why do you use uh, a tracking shot? What does it mean when you're using a crane? And it really goes into a lot of theory and gives a lot of great examples of how this works and how you can employ that into your production. And I think if you read those two books, just from a cinematographer standpoint, you'll have a greater understanding of why they move the camera, when they move the camera, why they they comp- you know place the camera in the scene the way they do. So two books that I would that I would really really recommend. Gotcha. Um, music wise, Matthew, what about music in this? Forget about me. Don't, 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 don't. I love the music in this. And I think that more than just being important, I think that in a, in a very teenage way, the music kind of makes a little bit of the film. Yeah. The music and brilliantly the way the music inter intertwines throughout it that final sequence of uh bender walking across the field and thrusting his little fist in the air and then the mm-hmm. song Duh! yeah that to me is something where i don't know and i honestly don't remember whether i loved that song before i saw the movie or because i loved the movie i found myself loving the songs but either way, they're they're integral to your appreciation. If that were, you know, a, I don't know, the Benny Hill kazoo solo, it would change yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah, about that film. And if it were, you know, a Frankie and Annette type ballad song in the sequence where he and Claire kind of, you know, fall in love or whatever they do or make out in a closet, however you want to place it, I think it would have changed the entire texture of the piece. Rodrigo, any comments on music? When was the last time you actually, I should have asked when was the last time you saw the breakfast club? Actually, it was, it was a good long while ago. Um, and, um, I saw, (laughs) I saw it in close proximity to, I think, say anything in 16 candles. So it all kind of runs together. (laughs) Um, but then I'm like, which one was the one with all the indoor shots? I was like, Oh yeah. Breakfast club. I know what happened. Um, anything you want, can add or want to add about the music? Because then I'm interested to see what Zach's perspective is on the music. Not not really, other okay. than um, it's cool that there was a track by Wang Chong, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The music is also responsible for the biggest misstep in the film. In? Um, the big sequence where they're dancing. Yeah, got to have a dance and sequence. And they're dancing. Yeah. And everything is, I mean, everything is really together. And the characters... From the way they're moving, are telling you more about them than their dialogue has said. And then Andrew oh, yeah, runs their dance into steps. the study room. Yeah, I hated that part. And turns around and screams, and the door oh, shatters. It's safety dumb. glass. It is. It is the worst. It, it seriously, it should not have made it into the final film. It is the worst high school. Or not even college level. It's high school movie making cliche. And, you know, I think Hughes knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm almost certain Hughes knew that because that is, that is, that'll drag you right out of the picture. Apparently the first uh, run or the first cut of Breakfast Club is 150 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cut it down to 92 minutes, I think, was what the final run time is on this. Chuck. Oh, yeah, I was reading. They had a lot of extra scenes of, uh, like, uh, 
yeah. Carl or Carl oh, yeah. tells all the kids where they're going to be in 30 years. Oh, cool. Yeah. The eat my short scene is a full two hours and 12 minutes. Long. <laughs> you want another one? Yes. How many is that? 3,954. I've got you for the rest of your life. Don't mess yes. with the bull boy. You'll get the horns. Um, what'd you think of the what music? Do you need a Zach? fake ID for the music for voting. Was, that was like the funniest line. That's the like, that was so <laughs> funny. That is so funny. Anthony Michael Hall claims that was an ad lib. Yeah, I read that. They said someone else said that too. Um, but, but what yeah. what about the music? But, uh, music was very eighties. Um, I will not take that as an insult. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> it was is very yep. set um, in the eighties with the music, and that was cool. 80s music is okay. It fit well with the movie. <laughs> it, fit, it fit well with their 80s. hairstyles yes. and shoulder pads. <laughs> Zach, you're, you're a neo-maxi Zoom dweeby. What would you know about 80s music? Well, not much, because I was born in the 90s. Exactly. But I know 80s music when I hear it, especially <laughs> Zach, top there, 40 man. 80s music, man. You don't Zach. know, man. Zach knows the 80s from when he ran into a Cafe 80s. <laughs> there was a Michael Jackson that, there, and he was like, Pepsi. <laughs> I think the thing that surprised me the most about the music in this is, I guess we've become so accustomed to music running throughout a piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But here, the music that they're using comes in as stingers. You know, when, yep. like, the, the big fight <laughs> scene, uh, not the big fight scene, but when Judd Nelson's character, Bender, is talking about uh, his parents and how they hate him, and he does the punch, you oh, know, yeah. on it, and all of a sudden the music just pops in there. And that's a popular song that just pops up and then just immediately drops off. So you hear that song in there for, like, 10 seconds tops. Yeah. And they do that a lot throughout the piece. Yeah. Every time he's crawling through the uh, air ducts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that Mission Impossible doodle doodle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's That's really it. weird. It was again, I guess when you're paying attention to these things, mm-hmm. it pops out at you a lot more than when you're just sitting back and relaxing and enjoying the the especially on the TBS because they cut it up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. they really cut it up. So let's talk about John Hughes. We've mentioned a lot of his movies. He's got a lot of his movies under his belt. He does not have that many uh, movies that he's directed. His first one was 1984, uh, 16 Candles, then Breakfast Club, then Weird Science in 85, Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 86, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in 87, She's Having a Baby in 88, Uncle Buck in 89, and Curly Sue in 91, where he was a director. Ferris Day Out. Ferris Bueller's uh, Day Out was 86. No, No, Baby's Day Out. Baby's Day Out is not him as a director. Everything else that he's done was either as an executive producer or a writer, and he's got a long writing credits. Didn't he direct Home Alone? Uh, He did not direct Home Alone. He was the writer and the producer of that. Yes. But it is is described often as a John Holmes movie. Yeah, yeah. And not a John Holmes movie. That would be quite (laughs) different there, Matthew. (laughs) But what is the man's name? John Hughes. It's a John Cena movie. I don't remember his name. Shut up. So it's a Howard Hughes movie. <laughs> breasts. Um, okay, so when you look at the movies that he's directed, Zach, and this is really important, uh-huh. 16 Candles, <laughs> Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Flames, Strains, Automobiles, She's Having Baiting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are some things that pop out as trademark <laughs> characteristics of a director. Mm-hmm. And in John Hughes films, and this is why you kind of know that they're Hughesy type films, is because first of all, they all take place in Shermer, Illinois. 
a fictional town. Well, fictional town, uh, Northbrook, Illinois, is where the events take place. But Northbrook's original name was Shermerville. So everything takes place in Shermerville, Illinois. So the center for 80s angst and teen <laughs> whatever in drama. the 80s drama <laughs> all came out of Illinois. Um, but he uses a lot of pop songs and music mm-hmm. cues. Like we, like I just mentioned, you see that a lot in all of those films. Um, oftentimes the characters will break the fourth wall. I, although I don't think that we saw that here where the characters directly address the audience. Not overtly. There mm-hmm. are moments that border on fourth wall. Yeah. But like in Ferris Bueller's day off, it's nothing but break the fourth yeah. wall. And I think right. that was the first time I ever really, paid attention to that because when Bueller's addressing everyone at the camera, I was just like, Whoa, I've not seen this before. This is really kind of cool. Um, and then of course, as I mentioned before, the freeze frame at the closing credits happens a lot in his films. So when you're looking at directors, there's always going to be characteristics. Um, um, Alfred Hitchcock has a number of them where he has to employ these things in his film. So, you know, it's his film. Mm -hmm. So, uh, as you watch some other Hughes films and, and really, if you go look at these, if you go look at 16 Candles, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Plain Strains and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby and Uncle Buck. If you just watch those films and nothing else of John Hughes's, I think you'll have a really keen idea of what a Hughes film is. I recommend that. not watching and never watching Curly Sue. I went and saw it in the theater. Yeah, I agree. That's why I didn't say it's on the <laughs> The only thing that Curly Sue has going for it is Steve Carell. And he ain't in it for long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, anything else you guys want to add about six, uh, um, uh, the breakfast club, <laughs> either from a, uh, technical standpoint, editing is really good. I thought, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but again, that's because we're in a controlled environment and we can shoot all of your shots, you know, your, yeah. your, your ups in a single day mm-hmm. and, and then edit it together later, but it's, it from, still worked out really well. From a psychological, from a storytelling perspective, there's another aspect to that controlled setting that works really well. You notice that when they are sitting in their seats, they're locked into their stereotypes. And yeah, it's yeah. not until they get out of their seats, he'll get up, we'll all get up, it'll be anarchy. It literally becomes anarchy. And once they're out of their seats, once they're quote unquote air quotes out of their places that's when they start actually transcending their positions. And it's important to me that the part where they really start bearing each other's souls and ripping each other apart alternately comes at a point where they have completely left that chair structure. They've gotten out of the school part, the portion that resembles their classroom, away from the desk chairs, whatever that is, and they're sitting in a circle in an area that is open. The use of that architecture is, you know, really strongly tied to what they do. And when they finally do break out and they're running through the halls, all the scenes in the hallways are really quick and really frenetic. And, oh, we shouldn't be out here. We need to get back to where it's safe. Because they're at a point where the halls are almost representative of you're out of school. Now you got to figure out what you're going to do with yourself. And there are people coming to find you. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. I overthink it. I don't know, but Rodrigo, what else? What, what about uh, anything else from you? Blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't know. I think I, I probably have not spent enough time uh, watching The Breakfast Club to really formulate um, a, a really strong kind of um, 
formal or technical um, hypothesis on it. So I will just say that when I watched it, I found it enjoyable. And as Zach pointed out, super 80s. And as someone who grew up in the 90s, like the 80s stick out like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Zach, your turn. Give us your final thoughts. Okay. And what you learned and how you're going to apply it to your future self. All right. Breakfast Club was a wonderful movie. I enjoyed every bit of it. I couldn't stop talking about it all weekend because it was so funny and sad and just all around a wonderful, wonderful movie to watch that so much I was like, I am going to show my kids this movie when they start going to high school because my parents didn't and that makes me sad. (laughs) (laughs) Show them before. So did your uh, did your girlfriend watch this one with you? Yeah, she did actually. She and actually stayed she, up. And she, she stayed, stayed up, up yeah, and yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, she liked it. All right. Yeah. All right. So uh, what did you learn from this film that you can apply going forward? So yeah, I mean, we, we talked a lot about the controlled environment, and I think that's uh, a really big deal for low budget movies, especially if you look at some of them. A lot of low budget movies stick to one place. I mean, Clerks is pretty much inside of a convenience convenience store the entire time. Mm -hmm. Low budget movie. 12 Angry Men is the same way. 12 Angry Men, yeah, inside a room. Uh, So learning or watching people how to do that and managing a budget while also staying creative and still being able to tell a wonderful story is a big takeaway. And editing is also very good about reactions and just building the story. Okay. Matthew, what's uh did he pass? Uh C plus this time. Oh, God. I think he's getting he's getting more into the thought process of it, but the one thing that you can't you can't let yourself get thrown by the eightiesness of it, because the eightiesness is what it is. It is the eighties and the eighties is it, and that is what it already is. Rodrigo, what about you? You see it in the most simple terms, the most convenient definition, Zach. I, I will I will agree with Matthew that it is the 80s and the 80s is what it is because this movie was impactful for people who saw it in the 80s. Um, and a lot of the reasons that people think about the 80s the way they do is because of John Hughes movies. Um, but as far as Zach's, um, I think that this time around um he gets a passing grade but um it gets lowered because he got caught up in the movie rather rather well. than approaching it with the cold and unfeeling <laughs> brain that i approach every movie with i will i will everything give, i will give yes. Zach a, a b on this a good Thank solid you. b because Thank he you. gets caught up in the film and that's ultimately one of the things that you should be striving for as a creator is to get your audience caught up in the story and not the little details, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah, I sit there and, I, and I'm making it a point as we go through these. Some of these I could rattle off the top of my head if we were t- doing Die Hard, which I do think is on the list. Let me look here. Yeah, it is. Die Hard is on the list. I don't even have to watch that movie because I can, you know, I know every shot in that movie. But I'm trying to go back and watch these, you know, it's kind of a refresher. And yeah, I'm watching them now with a technical eye, but I remember watching them in the mm-hmm. original form, just getting so caught up. And I think that is part of telling the good story. If you're watching these films, Zach, just sitting down, I always say you should watch films at least twice. The yeah, first time you I watch it, to. you watch it for the entertainment purpose. Mm-hmm. And then the second time you watch it purely for the evaluation purpose of it, yeah. the technical aspect of it. So 
I'm not going to let you out of the out of the 80s just yet. That's okay. And here's one of the weird things about the 80s, too. <laughs> you will never escape the 80s. The mid to late 80s had a certain look and feel to them. And it felt like the 80s. The early 80s, like 81, <laughs> 82, right? But if you go back and look at 81, 82, they don't That's feel true. like they're the 80s. They feel like they, feel they are like still the late the 70s. 70s. Yeah. So we are going to go back and we're going to look at another coming of age film uh, that came out in 1982. Doesn't take place in Sherman, Illinois, but it does take place on the West Coast. We are, of course, talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, directed by Amy uh, Heckerling, I think is her name. Written by Cameron Crowe. And the story about how Cameron Crowe came up with this story is fascinating, especially if you're familiar with another movie that he worked on called Almost Famous. But we'll learn more about Fast Times at Ridgemont High next time, Zach. All right, that will wrap it up here on this episode of Zach uh, on Film. Thanks for downloading and listening. If you want to read and learn more about us and about Major Spoilers, head on over to Majorspoilers.com. And while you are there, click on that Amazon link to purchase your very own copy of The Breakfast Club or for next week, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, Same price, but a little bit of that will come back our way and we'll keep all of our ships afloating. So next week... Fast times at Ridgemont High. And that'll end it here. Thanks, bud, and we'll see you next week.